The following is a Poppy Chulo Radio original program. The views and opinions expressed in the commentaries and or interviews in the following program are solely those of the individuals and are not views of Poppy Chulo Radio, its parent, affiliate, or subsidiary companies. Cordyceps Chronicles, a PoppyChulaRadio.com original series, Poppy Chula Radio, pop culture on demand. Today is Monday, February 6, 2023, and I'm your host, Priscilla Obregón. During this podcast, we'll be having an in-depth discussion on HBO's The Last of Us. Please welcome my co-host, Jeffrey Aruz. Welcome back, everybody, on our little trek across the country. We'll be missing Vinny today, but I'm sure he'll come back with us bright and ready with brand new information for us to consume. So, with that being said, let's jump into our discussion of Season 1, Episode 4, which is titled Please Hold to My Hand, and debuted February 5th, 2023 via HBO. Here's the official synopsis of the episode. After Joel and Ellie leave Bill and Frank's compound, they come across something that is even more deadly than the infected people. Joel must protect Ellie at all costs, lest he, rele- he, lest he relive what happened to his daughter all those years ago. So for the first time in The Last of Us, the episode takes place entirely in the present. Everything discussed uh, from now on is part of the show's 2023 time period. We start the episode with Ellie, alone in a gas station bathroom, admiring the gun she took from Bill and Frank's place, Without Joel knowing, Ellie seems fascinated by the gun, pulling the trigger with an empty barrel and smelling the weapon before she puts it away. We've already seen Ellie's curiosity when it comes to violence, as she seems intrigued by Joel in the first episode when he killed the Fedra officer. And in last week's episode, Long Long Time, she stabbed the trapped infected, seemingly just to see what it was like. Ellie was born in this world of violence and outside the walls of the Boston quarantine zone. She seems to be accepting the world's severity. As she leaves, we find Joel siphoning gas for the truck that they also got from Bill and Frank's home. While Ellie waits, she pulls out a joke book, no pun intended, volume two, spelled T-O-O, and starts reading them to an unwilling Joel. Later on, as they continue on the truck... Ellie rags on Joel a bit more, and she finds a Hank Williams cassette that Joel puts on. Then after finding a gay porn magazine, she jokes about how all the pages are stuck together. Much like the game, these moments with the magazine and the joke book show that the barrier between the two is cracking. Ellie's already opening herself up to her protector, while Joel is starting to slowly but surely accept Ellie and her eccentricities bit by bit. While they drive down the road, we see that the world of man has been lost to nature. Buffaloes still roam in herds, and we see plenty of cars and military vehicles left on the side of the road, abandoned, even with a giant bridge giving out in the middle. Joel and Ellie pull off the road and into the woods to spend the night, and Joel cooks a meal of 20-year-old Chef Boyardee ravioli. Ellie likes the pasta, and Joel even agrees with her. As they eat, they discuss their plans 
that they should reach Wyoming in just a few days, and Joel tells Ellie that despite the cold, they can't make a fire, as they could attract other people. Ellie asks if these other people would rob them, to which Joel says they'll have more on their minds than just that. As the two lie down in their sleeping bags for the night, Ellie gets out her joke, joke book and asks Joel a serious question. Why did the Scarecrow win an award? To which Joel replies, because he was outstanding in his field. Ellie seems taken aback, surprised by this lighthearted side of Joel. As Joel goes back to bed, we see a rare smile on his face for just a second. Ellie then concernedly asks him what ask about those people, ensuring they won't find them. Joel assures her that they won't find them, to which Ellie accepts. Another sign that there's already growing trust between those two. Almost as if he's second-guessing himself, or maybe just to make sure, we see that Joel stays up all night with his gun, protecting Ellie from strangers who may or may not be lurking out there. And to that I will pause and ask, what did you think about this group of scenes, Jeffrey? It was really nice. I liked seeing the bond between Joel and Ellie grow. You know, Ellie slowly breaking down some of the barriers, some of the walls that Joel has put up for the past, like, 20 years. It was nice to see her slowly break them down. I will say, to rewind before I even get into more of that, her with the gun freaked me out because I was just like, oh my god, please, I don't know if you know anything about guns and gun safety and that sort of stuff. So I was like, if you shoot that, maybe a whole situation might end up happening. And even though, like, I feel like both Joel and Ellie have an immense amount of plot armor on them. So I'm not really worried that anything bad, bad is going to happen to them. I still worry about them getting into really precarious situations. Like, I want them both protected. But, um, so going back to their relationship, like, seeing the walls slowly start to break down from him not really giving her the time of day in the beginning with the pun book, and then, you know, responding with the right pun. I mean, it was just wonderful. And then when she was like, what what's going to happen? Like, can we light a fire? And uh, she was like, oh, it's probably because of the infected. And he's like, no, people. And they're going to do worse things than you can imagine. And I was like, uh-oh. And then the music changed. And I was like, oh, is this like the, like the game, in essence, being predictable? Like, are bad people going to show up in the night? And this is where we're going to meet some of the, the ne'er-do-wells of the post-apocalyptic world. It did not happen. So there was a like there was a sense of relief, but it was in essence a false sense of relief based off of what happens next. But seeing them together, seeing the bond grow was really nice. I'm going to agree with you. Like I think that was like one of the highlights of the episode and uh like a shutdown to all the naysayers that are like it's not following the game. This is Joel and Ellie's season what are we doing watching other people well give it a minute dude like it's it's growing like and their relationship will grow slowly but surely as the episodes progress you don't have to rush it furthermore like this episode really gives a nod to the gamers because oh god if there was one thing that like everybody complained about well two things they were completely shot down by this group of scenes which were one Ellie didn't have that scene where she's going through, like, 
Bill stuff and she finds the gay porn. Like they were like, oh, that's one of the funniest bits in the in the video game. Why? Like because we have this moment, like we lost like a really funny moment that Ellie could have had with Joel. And no, we didn't. We had it, and it came up organically, and it was funny as hell. Like the the, the in the live action, and two, the, the people were wondering whether or not she was going to get the joke book, because that's like kind of a, a side of the video game. It happens organically, and they're like video compilations of people like putting all of the jokes that she says throughout the game, like in one thing, but like. It's more like the Riddler's trophies in Batman Arkham City and Arkham Asylum where you can choose whether or not you want to unlock them and look for them and say them. So, like, I just, I was glad that we saw the joke book. And uh, it just reminds me that, like, missed opportunity because auditory listeners, if you're if you're there, like, the we, we do an MVP and I say the top ten, uh, like, and rankings, and I say rank it from, like, 1 to 10 infected, I was going to put joke books, but I was like, what if they don't bring the joke books to the live action, like, to the, to this portrayal? Like, I'll, I'm going to look like an idiot, so I, I'm not going to do it. But missed opportunity, because apparently they did, and it would have worked really well. But yeah, other than that, like, I really like these scenes. I also, like... As the practical person in me, I'm like, 20 years in a can. I guess if it's not dented or swollen, like, it's preserved fine. So you should, you can eat the Chef Boyardee. But a part of me was, like, side-eyeing that moment being like, mm-mm, that does not sound like a good thing. But if people eat, like, military rations from the 1950s and they still work together, like they still work well, like, I- I'm guessing, like, preservation has come a long way, and if so long as the can doesn't seem to have, like, botulism in it, they're fine. Right, and, shout out to preservatives. Yeah. And the uh, the joke, why did the Scarecrow win an award, I, I legitimately cracked up. I thought that was funny. I didn't think the first joke was funny, but I was like, wow, that, that one was really good. I liked it. I didn't double-check to see if it was in the video game, but if it was, I don't mind that they reused it. I thought it was cool. So... The next morning, the two pack up the truck and head back on the road, Joel manning the wheel with Ellie keeping an eye on the map. The topic of conversation heads toward Tommy, and Joel opens up, saying that Tommy used to be what he called a joiner, that he dreamed of being a hero. Tommy enlisted in the Army after high school and then was shipped out to Operation Desert Storm, but that didn't make him feel like a hero. Twelve years later, after the outbreak, Tommy convinced Joel to join him in a group leading to Boston, which Joel did primarily in order to keep Tommy safe and alive. There they met Test, and they formed a crew. But then Tommy met Marlene, who talked him into joining the Fireflies, with dreams that he could save the world. Joel says that Tommy and the Fireflies' hope of saving the world are a pipe dream, and that they're delusional. But last Joel heard, Tommy also left the Fireflies, and now he's on his own, meaning that Joel has to go get him. Ellie questions Joel's lack of hope, saying that they have to try, but Joel rebuts that she hasn't seen the world yet, so she doesn't know. But Joel says, you gotta keep going for your family, and that's about it. When Ellie says that she's not family, Joel says, no, you're cargo. I made a promise to Tess, and she was like family. 
Further down the road in Kansas City, the interstate goes through a tunnel that is blocked by wrecked trucks and cars. Instead of backtracking further, they take an exit off the highway with plans to get on in the next exit. As they drive through the city, we see piles of bodies that they manage to miss, and they see a quarantine zone that has been deserted. Soon after, they see a man walking in the street doubled over, calling for help. Joel tells Ellie to put her seatbelt on, and the two drive towards the man, with Joel saying they're not going to help him. As they pass the man, another man drops a cinder block on their windshield. Their tires are popped by a spike strip, and another man appears with a gun. Joel and Ellie crash the truck into a laundromat as they're shot at from the street, and Joel tells Ellie to crawl into a hole in a nearby wall and to stay there until he gets her, promising that she won't get hurt. Once she's there, Joel hides behind a useless truck and shoots their attackers. Joel believes all men to be dead, but then another man sneaks up behind him, knocking him to the ground and pressing his gun up to his neck, slowly killing him. Knowing she has no other choice, Ellie sneaks up on the man and shoots him with her secret gun. But the man isn't dead, crying and begging Ellie not to shoot again. Joel takes the gun from Ellie, takes the begging man's knife, and tells Ellie to get back into the wall. From our hiding spot, we hear Joel stab the man to death. With all the men gone, Joel and Ellie leave the laundromat and head to the streets, hoping to find higher ground and a path out of danger. So, this was eventful as hell. And for all of those being like, we're not getting action scenes. Here you go. So, from the action scene to your eyeballs, Jeff, what'd you think? Oh, it was hella entertaining. It was, yeah, it was suspenseful. It was well done. Yeah, it was, it was just, it was really good. Like, I was impressed by this moment. Now, rewind a little bit. The bit of exposition that we got. I will say the exposition that we got throughout the entire episode, whether it's Joel revealing stuff or Ellie revealing stuff, was incredibly important. Especially because we had that moment in the previous episode where, at the end, Joel was like, no questions, we don't need to talk about our past, this, that, or the other... Now, they've been on the road for a moment, and at a certain point, the silence is deafening. So I'm glad that they both started opening up to each other about their past in this episode, just because, as viewers, we really want that information. Like, it is vital information for us to get to know these characters. Now, back to the action-y moment at hand. I knew when we saw the person... Not to trust him. Like, I just knew it. Like, I was with Joel. I was like, you just drive. I wish they had, like, gone in reverse. Um, because clearly driving forward was not the way to go. Hello, Cinderblock. And that sort of thing. Joel getting the two guys was spectacular. Just because, I mean, it makes sense that he's going to be an excellent marksman. He's been alive for 20 years, and based off of the, well, let me rephrase what I'm saying. He's been alive for 20 years in the post-apocalypse, so he's seen stuff, and he actually said that he's seen stuff, he's been involved in stuff with his group and that sort of thing, so seeing him expertly merc those people was brilliant, and it, it clearly, for me, fit with the character that he is now him getting sneak attacked that was i don't want to say it was expected but i felt like we were going to need to have a moment at some point with the gun 
that Ellie has. So that was her moment to shine. The reaction was actually kind of nice, just because at the end of the day, she saved his life. So it's not like he could be really... He could, it's not like he could be that mad that she had the gun. Him murking the guy, like, that was, like, brutal. Just because, like, the man's basically begging for his life. And it made me laugh in the back of my mind, because I was like, you're dead. But he's like, oh, we could be friends. Like, we could trade. Like, it was just a mistake. Like, you know, we were just testing y'all out. Like, and my mom is over there. Like, can you take me to my mom? I'm like, no, motherfucker. Like, you're going to, like, lead them to people and they're going to shoot them. Like, they're not that dumb. So him getting murked was... I mean, it was expected, but good grief. Like, I love that Joel was trying to protect Ellie from, like, seeing it. That was, I think, appropriate. I mean, she's still a kid, you know. She still, he sees her as a bit of an innocent, at least up to that point in the episode. He learns a little bit more a little bit later. But he's trying to preserve, you know, the childlike innocence that he feels she has. So that was understandable as well. But it was, it was a very tense moment, and uh, I thought they did a really great job conveying it. Uh, to to emphasize what you said about the beginning, about um, the discussion, I really liked our um, insight into Tommy, into him. Like, why would you join the Fireflies if you, like, if you're the brother of this guy who's, like, really standoffish, who doesn't really want to help, or it doesn't seem like a joiner? Why would you, like, if you're blood kin to him, shouldn't you be similar to him? But I like that Joel is like, no, my, my, my brother's an idiot, and I have to take care of him. And obviously, I'm going to Wyoming because he's in trouble, and he might be in trouble because of the fireflies, he might not, but I'm used to protecting him. And I liked how ice cold he was to Ellie, like, after the really warm moments that we've gotten with them, with the chef Boyardee and with the joke book. The contrast to her being like, you're not family, you're cargo. He's trying to be as cold as possible. But to me as a viewer, ignoring the fact that I know how this story goes, it seems like he's trying to convince himself. I'm not sure if you thought the same way. Oh, totally. I agree with you on that. Like, I see, as I mentioned earlier, like, I see the walls slowly breaking down but this is a man who for 20 years has tried not to get close to anybody because the closest person that he had his daughter died and that rocked his world so i understand his headspace as to why he's doing that like i don't know if i would be able to do that but i've never gone through something as horrific as what he has but i i get his mindset but i see that that's slowly slowly but it is slowly starting to happen he's warming up to her you know he's doing a lot of things as you're saying to sort of trigger himself to go back into that mindset or at least to convince himself that he's still in that mindset but i feel i I mean this is their story so i mean they are gonna eventually bond and and that sort of thing so the bonding is slowly starting to happen i also wanted to bring up like a criticism that I saw online, but that, like, me and my husband rationalized it out afterwards. And it was, um, I was like, 
if he's got a map, why is he, for the love of God, why is he going through the big cities like Kansas City when he knows, like, there's people that are, like, just scavenging and going through the QZ, like, that used to be there and just all in all being, like, terrible people. Like, why would he want to go through big cities like that? And then, like, my husband was like, well, think about it. He needs gas, and the gas has been, like, slowly deteriorating. So he's going to have to go through the big streets to continuously find cars again and again, as opposed to going to, like, dirt roads and bodunk hink towns where there's not going to be anybody left there anymore. There's no cars. Mm-hmm. So, like, that made sense to me. And, uh... I completely agree with you with uh, with the bait with the trap that they set. As soon as like that I saw the guy limping up there, I'm like, run him over. Run him over. He he's he's bait. Yes. He's 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 gonna fuck you over. I love like, and, I love how yeah. in the post apocalyptic world you're like murderous. <laughs> you are like you said the same shit like uh, a handful of episodes ago during the premiere you were like nope don't stop for anybody run them over they're in front of your car keep on driving like it was just I love it like there's this like there's this killer inside you Priscilla <laughs> and I expect that from you know one of our other podcasters shout out to Brittany like I know there's a killer in her but I, this is surprising it's like the bloodlust is coming out on the last it's of the, us that survival instinct well yeah like i'm like i because i know that like people are evil and joel realized it too he's like i was in their shoes once i know that they're trying to like trap us and steal our resources so i'm not gonna let that happen so i was like although i completely agree with you he should have gone back and just been like well this city is terrible I'm going to go all the way around, even though it takes me hours, and just, I don't know, siphon some gas into a jar or something to, to load up later on. Like, I don't know. He, he could have done anything else, but he, now he's lost the car, and it's all his own, it's his own damn fault. Which is why when the kid was, I'm going to say kid, because he looked like a teenager. When he was begging for his life, I'm like, you ruined, like, his quickest chance to get to his brother. Really, and and you try to kill him. You really think he's gonna give you um any leeway here, dude? You're dead. But I did appreciate that he did the things that will humanize you to to somebody who um is trying to murder you or hurt you. Bringing up the fact that you're also a child by bringing up the fact that you have a mother, that you have kids, or that you have like people that rely on you, or Or saying, like, my name is such and such, what's your name? To humanize you, to make you less of an object, to make you less of a a villain and more of a a fellow human being that you don't want to hurt. Like, little tricks like that, like, make you feel guilty if you're going to do bad shit to somebody else. Like, I, I, I see that all the time in, like, my true crime podcast that they always tell, like, people, like, no, you should do this. So seeing it, like, played out on the screen, like, it felt like shit. I was like, fuck, I feel bad for him. Like, I, I, like, I know that, that he caused all this, like, damage and that he's a scavenger and ultimately, like, a shitty person. But he's still a person. So I, I, I felt bad. But it's the apocalypse. And I don't know if they have a doctor or not, but he got shot in the gut. 
through the back by Ellie. If he's not going to die with Joel doing something to him, whether it's like slashing his neck or shooting him, like he's going to die of blood loss from or infection from that wound. And don't you want it to be quick as opposed to like dying out there or maybe being like prey to a fungus at who knows what it's like there. So, yeah. And I did appreciate, did you notice that um, when Ellie shot at the guy, like, for a second, she seemed transfixed, like, I just did this. Like, I just screwed some guy over. But then a part of her, like, the humanity side of her was like, shit, what did I just do? And she ran away and started crying. And she, like, wiped away her tears, like, really quickly because Joel was kind of, like, getting down to business and killing the guy. And she's like, it's n- now is not the time for me to be, like, emotional. Meaning that her and Joel are a lot more, like, are very alike. Because I I think I saw the same, like, look on his face when he was beating the soldier to death. And he realized, like, hey, I'm, like, protecting someone right now. But, like, I just killed someone. I've got to, like, I've got to put, put, like, ponerte mis pilas. Like, I've got to put the batteries on and, like, react and do something. They're both survivors. And I liked that. Oh, and before I forget, this series is the first HBO series I've seen that knows how to light in the dark. Holy shit. <laughs> like, I, I, I mentioned this in the last one, but like, I, I, I'm, I'm throwing the finger at you, House of the Dragon. You guys can't make dark scenes worth shit. I can't see anything. But I could see when Ellie was talking and looking through the joke book. I can see when... Uh, Joel was making like a little smile. I could see when he was defending the roost. Like I could see everything, even though it was pitch black because they lit like they did smart tricks with the light, like either making the moonlight light on their faces or like the the torch or like just anything. Like, and I feel like I think it was Craig Mazin that directed this one. Like for someone who is like. I don't know. Like, I saw this in Chernobyl, too. Like, he knows how to make, like, good lighting. So, I, I, I'm impressed. So, with that being said, we then leave Joel and Ellie and meet Kathleen, played by the wonderful Melanie Linsky from Yellow Jackets. Watch that show. It's good. Who is interrogating an older man in a federal lockup, asking him where she can find the people she's looking for. The list ends with the name Henry, and Kathleen can tell the man is lying about not knowing Henry's whereabouts. Kathleen then looks at the cell they're in and questions whether this was a federal lockup where her brother was beaten to death. The man says that Kathleen was wronged and that he's sorry, but that she's gone too far and this has to stop. But Kathleen points out that of course it has to stop. Now that the man doesn't feel safe and protected, it didn't matter when he was safe and ratting out to people to Fedra. As Kathleen holds a gun to the man's head, we learn that he was the doctor that delivered her and that the doctor promises that he never told Fedra anything about her brother. But Kathleen states that Henry did and that they know he's still in the city and she believes the doctor knows where he is. She holds the gun up to his head and the man once again reiterates that he was her doctor. Even though Kathleen says, you don't think I'll do it? We can see that this bond does hold some weight with her. 
When she hears the truck horn from out in the street, she leaves the cell and the doctor unharmed. On the street, her team has found the men that Joel killed. The leader of the squad, Perry, who is played by Jeffrey Pierce, who coincidentally played Tommy in The Last of Us video games. Perry, well, he says that people who did this were outsiders, heavily supplied and not from Fedra, but they could be mercenaries. Kathleen posits that maybe Henry called these mercs in and then asked if any of the men would live with the help of the doctor, to which the men reply that there's no chance. Kathleen turns around and immediately returns to the doctor's cell with purpose, pulling out her gun and shooting the doctor dead. Kathleen returns to the streets and claims that the death of these men is Henry's work and that he won't stop until they find him. Her people must find Henry's collaborators and kill them all. As they go on their mission, we see Kathleen's team is heavily armed with guns, trucks, and plenty of men to enact a building-by-building search with ease. I'm going to pause here and go, what do you think about Kathleen and the doctor and the moment with uh, Perry? Well, I didn't want to interrupt. I just, a, a tiny correction. The episode was directed by Jeremy Webb. It was written by Craig. Oh, okay. Well, yes. you did a really good job. Jeremy Webb did a good job, yes. Hopefully they hire you for House of the Dragon. I'm just saying. But um, uh, Kathleen was fascinating. Uh, it was, I think for me, it was kind of expected that we were going to meet some of the denizens of this area. So how they did it, it didn't feel that jarring. So they did a good job with that. It just flowed for me. And seeing her be incredibly intense and uh, via sort of context clues of the area, you know, the fact that, you know, it looked like a quarantine zone, but where is Fedra and all that kind of stuff, it made sense in my head that these are just people that basically did some sort of revolution, a revolt against Fedra, and uh, the the people from the quarantine zone are now in charge. And uh, based off of what she was saying to uh, the the doctor, it just sounded like bad shit happened with Fedra, and now that the people that Fedra was doing the bad shit to are in charge, they're making anyone that was in cahoots with Fedra, or anyone that they feel was in cahoots with Fedra, they're going to make them pay. And uh, and that, based off of what Kathleen was saying and how she was acting and that sort of thing, I was like, okay, I trust Henry, whom she's looking for, much more than Kathleen. I'm just saying. Like, she just... She seems like a very intense woman that is so riled up because she feels that she knows the truth. In actuality, she probably doesn't know shit. Yeah, I I feel like she's one of those people that, like, you look so hard, like, staring into the dark, the abyss. The abyss stares back at you. Like, you've, you've fought the monster so much, you've turned into a monster. And, like, the doctor... I get that he ratted people out to Fedra, but he didn't rat out, like, her brother to Fedra. Like, it wasn't her, but it wasn't directly related to her. But the fact, the sheer, just the notion that he knows the guy who she suspects, like, ratted out her brother, 
like ha- is enough for her to to just shoot him in cold blood. And even after like hearing like, like again the humanizing elements, he's like I. I I held you when you were an infant, like a minute out of your mother's womb. Like, I helped give birth to you, and that meant nothing to her when it, it when it came down to her revenge. I'm just amazed at how like brutal she is. And again, if you haven't seen Yellow Jackets, she's just she's just like that. I'm looking forward to see like how humanizing we get to see her. Like, because I I don't want to have like one dimensional villains. I want to like feel something for them. I want to feel the impetus of why they're doing it. And I get that like she's searching for revenge for her brother, but like there's got to be more to it, I feel. So, I I'm intrigued by Kathleen. I want to know more about her. And the other person I want to know more about is Perry. Jeffrey Pierce, like I I I saw him and I was like, I think I recognize you from somewhere. And at the very end of the episode when they do the after credits like chats, they mentioned that he was Tommy, and I'm like, aha, I recognized you from somewhere, and I, I, I felt cool. I did my little victory dance. I was like, yes, I, I figured out I figured out the puzzle here. And he, I don't know if he really is, like, too old to play Tommy, and that's why they put him as Perry, but he did a really good job as Perry. Like, he, he seems like the second-in-command the guy who is a yes man to uh, Melanie Linsky's like revenge plots. Like she's, he's kind of like, well, whatever the leader says goes and just kind of follows along. So I like, I'm interested in like, I, I really don't think he's going to get more than the one dimensional thing. Like, I don't think he's going to get a background story, but I think Kathleen might. So, uh, also, another thing, obviously they're getting gas and or diesel from somewhere because those cars looked like souped up and like heavily armed. I f- I felt like shit. Joel and Ellie have the work cut out from them if they're gonna sneak past like all this stuff because they took they basically they have everything that they packed in the truck plus their own supplies. And all they have left is what? A knife from a dead kid, a little gun that has how many bullets left? Who knows? I don't even know if, if Joel took back his like huge gun, but they they have their work cut out for them. Right. That was the thing that I thought about the most throughout this episode after you know the the altercation happened. I was like, Oh gosh, you guys had so much stuff. And now, at least at this point, it's all gone. That's not to say that they can't find other stuff, but in my mind, I was just like, oh, you all, both of you, were set, you know, to go to Wyoming. You guys had everything that you needed. And now, bloop. Pretty much. I I, I felt bad for them. Like, now what are we going to do without all that Chef Boyardee to eat? <laughs> <laughs> But, okay, so we cut back to Joel and Ellie, who are hiding out in the bar, watching as Kathleen's men search the apartments for Henry and his collaborators. They also see a tall building a few blocks away, which they plan to head to once things die down. In a moment of quiet, they both ask each other if they're all right. Joel then confides that he feels bad that Ellie had to save him from 
the man who snuck up on him, getting choked up by the idea that a kid had to do that to protect him. Joel says he knows what it's like the first time you have to hurt someone like that and that it was Joel's fault that Ellie shouldn't have had to shoot the guy. And Joel apologizes to Ellie. But Ellie confesses that that wasn't her first time without delving into details. After that, Joel gives Ellie the gun back, making sure that she knows how to use it and tells her to put it in her bag. But instead, Ellie puts the gun in her jacket. It's a touching moment of compassion between the two, showing that maybe Joel was starting to care for Ellie and maybe even consider her more than just cargo. As they get ready to leave the bar, Joel promises we'll get through this, to which Ellie replies, I know. Back to Kathleen, Perry says that they found signs of Henry. Perry takes Kathleen to a crawl space in a nearby building. Inside, they find crayon drawings of superheroes, empty cans of food, and a place where people were clearly sleeping. As they leave the space, Kathleen points out that they're out of food and that Henry won't let Sam starve and that they must be close. Perry then takes Kathleen to another room where it looks like a crater hits the ground. The caved-in ground starts to move and they both leave the room, frightened by what's underneath. Kathleen says they should seal off the building and not tell people what's going on down there until after they found Henry. And I'm going to put a pause here, even though I know that... We- if you're anything like me, you want to talk about that ending to just like talk about this bunch of scenes and ask you what your opinion was. Okay. So uh, Kathleen was interesting. Like, cause she seems to be like the leader. She's like the big boss, the person in charge of uh, this area. And I fully understand she has tunnel vision She's trying to get to this man named Henry because she feels that she wronged that she she feels that he wronged her in regards to her brother being executed. So she's got pure tunnel vision. But if you see in a building that there's a crater and Clearly, the thing that's shaking the ground is some sort of infected. If you're a good leader, you put that tunnel vision shit aside and you do what's best for the greater good. There are so many people surrounding these buildings that have, you know, high impact weapons. You take that shit out first. Hell, you might even freak the the people that you're looking for out so much that they might reveal themselves. Like, they might start, you know, trying to escape because, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. So, yeah, so that's when I looked at Kathleen and I was like, okay, you're not a good leader. Because clearly whatever's in there is going to come back and bite all of you in the ass. And it's going to be incredibly enjoyable to watch, just being honest. When we saw the drawings and the canned goods and that kind of stuff, I was like, okay, I'm even more on Henry's side because Henry is protecting, you know, a a little person, a young person. So I was like, okay, um, Henry is protecting a child. That means I trust you more than I'm trusting Kathleen. I'm just saying. So, uh, So that was interesting to see. The way that it was done also... It was it was a little strange just because I don't trust these people. So I was a little worried, like, is Perry, you know, uh, 
gonna like murk her or something like i had no idea what was gonna happen so i was like okay there's a crawl space and okay it's just that they saw people there um initially when the scene started and he was like you know i've got evidence i was like okay it's clearly not gonna be of joel and ellie because they're in a building that we haven't seen so i wasn't worried for them but once we got a little bit more information about henry and sam i was like "Uh oh um shit's about to go down i was like I'm watching this organically. Like I haven't gone back and and replayed or rewatched the the scenes apart from like after the show, like watching people do comparison videos. So when they brought up Henry and Sam, I was like, oh my god, ah, like I, like right away, like flashbacks to what they meant in the game, like came to, up to me. And I'm not gonna do any spoilers because if you want that, like. Look it up yourself. Like, you'd be better off, like, watching it organically. It is a wonderful, like, storyline. Don't Wikipedia anything. Just watch it. It's going to be good. And, like, I'm looking forward to it, is what I have to say to all of our listeners. And uh, I got to say, the whole, like, discussion when Ellie, like, confesses that it wasn't her first time... I kind of figured that was going to happen because if you think about it, she's already gone through something with a clicker before with another person who obviously meant something to her but isn't there anymore. That they dis- This is all stuff that's been discussed in the, in the show. So something must have happened to her. She must have killed her or shot her or like left her to the wolves or something. But like... I, I figured that, like, that's what, what happened. And I completely agree with you about the fact that Kathleen is a selfish leader. She's thinking of only of her search for revenge, not thinking of the people. Because if I saw the ground freaking breathing the way it did there, like, kind of thumping up like a heartbeat in, in that crater, I'd be like, okay, everybody, bring out your gasoline, bring out your napalm. Let's, like, fry this bitch so, so it's, like, burnt fungus because burnt fungus can attack us but she didn't think about that she just thought let's cordon this off and I'm like that doesn't work for anything except maybe pandemics like and even then not very well because people still sneak by it and you don't think this this fungus is going to sneak by you think again so yeah I completely agree with you I'm looking forward to seeing the madness that takes place after this terrible terrible leadership decision So, with that, we rejoin Joel and Ellie as they enter the tall building with plans to climb as many as 45 floors to get a better look at the city. As they climb floor by floor, Ellie asks Joel how she knew the guy with the fake injury was going to ambush them. Joel admits that he's been on both sides and that a long time ago, they did what they needed to do to survive. The they, meaning Joel, tests Tommy and the people they were with. Ellie asks Joel if he's killed innocent people, and Joel ignores the question, yet the silence answers the question nonetheless. The pair makes it up 33 floors before Joel is too exhausted to keep going. Joel, Ellie calls Joel a lazy ass, and Joel jokes he's 56 years old, you do shit. The two find a room to stay in for the night, with Ellie creating a makeshift bed out of cushions while Joel breaks glass and spreads it near the door so they'll know if anything tries to come in. Ellie asks if he'll hear the glass, to which Joel says, of course he will. That's the point. 
The two lay down for the night, but before they go to sleep, Joel asks Ellie what she meant, that it wasn't her first time hurting people. But this time it's Ellie who doesn't want to talk about her past. Joel accepts it, saying that she doesn't have to talk about it, but it isn't fair at her age to have to deal with this. Ellie asks if it gets easier when you're older, to which Joel says it doesn't, but still. Ellie follows up on the glass, saying that she asked because she noticed Joel doesn't hear too well on his right side. Ellie asks if it's because that's where he was shot, and Joel says he prob- probably more from him shooting. To lighten the mood, Ellie tells another one of her bad jokes, and the two laugh with each other, overcome with the ridiculousness of a terrible joke about diarrhea. In the matter of one episode, we can clearly see how much closer this pair has gotten to each other, both trusting in each other, knowing that they have each other's back, and feeling a camaraderie that neither of them has felt in quite some time. But Ellie was right to worry about Joel not hearing the glass, as in the middle of the night, Ellie wakes up Joel with a start as she's being held at gunpoint by a young man, and Joel discovers the child with a drawn-on superhero mask is holding a gun on him as well. As the credits roll, we hear the cover of New Order's True Faith, which was used in promotional material for The Last of Us Part 2, with the game's Ellie, Ashley Johnson, singing a version based on Lottie Kestner's own cover. While it's a nice reference to the game, the song is also from 1987, which once again, like Tess and Frank's radio code, means trouble. And with that end pointed out, Jeffrey, what did you think of this dilemma? Oh, I'm not scared for them um, at all. Uh, but the stuff before, I mean, the joke was hilarious. Oh my god, it was so good. And the way that they both cracked up, it was like freaking Pedro Pascal uh, cracking up on SNL over the weekend. It was spectacular. Um, he really enjoyed himself. He was just cracking up everywhere. But, um, but yeah, like, seeing them continue to bond, seeing that she has a little bit of trauma in her, you know, that she isn't as innocent, like, wide-eyed, doe-eyed innocent as Joel has kind of been trying to, or at least as Joel has been, like, seeing her as and, like, trying to protect her from, like, the world and that sort of thing, seeing that she has trauma was really interesting, like, just because I want to hear the story. So I hope at some point, soonish, we can get the story, uh, because that was, uh, that was an interesting moment, and, and I just, I need more information. This was a short episode, so I need more information. What Joel did as a sort of intruder alert was brilliant. Clearly it didn't work. I don't know if it was like a writer situation or something, but clearly it did not work. And uh, I, I trust these people way more than I do Kathleen. So they'll be fine. I completely agree with you on like, cause I feel wrongly, but like just, it's a feeling that I get that Melanie's, Melanie Linsky's character, Kathleen, is really a bitch. And, like, if you're against her, then you're for the people. Like, you are a good guy. And I feel like if her brother was, like, someone that Fedra was going after, not that Fedra is completely, like, good. We've obviously seen from the soldier before that Fedra are a bunch of assholes. But, like, they're trying to keep the peace. And if you were fucking around, like, of course you're going to find out. So, like, I... I respect the right to a revolution, but I feel like if you were a good leader, if you gave a shit about your people, like, you'd act differently than she does. She feels like she's got, like, something else in mind as opposed to being a good leader. And, again, the little kid is so charming. I'm thinking you, Sam. So, like, I love his little, like, 
red sash over his eyes, like painted on. I thought that was really cute. I love the and and oh god, going back a little bit when that when they said forty five floors, I'm like, oh, just kill me now. There's no elevators in the in the apocalypse. Fuck. And when Joel makes it up thirty three floors and he and Ellie calls him a lazy ass because he needs to take a breath. I was like, Ellie, you're young. You've got collagen flowing through you. Of course you're gonna be able to go through all of this shit. But Joel, Joel's old. You are old, Father William. Let let him let him relax. Let him chill for a little bit. Fifty six years old is has gone through troubles. He's got knee issues or something. And ah, oh, I just I felt bad for Joel, but respectful that he made it up thirty three floors. Um, I also wanted to say that uh, I Ellie's a sharp like a sharp tool because she figured out that he has trouble with his right ear. And I didn't even notice that. Like, the obviously, like, the, the actor's been acting that po- point, like, favoring uh, a side. But it, it didn't, it took until Ellie pointed it out for me to realize that. And obviously she was right, considering he lied, he lay down on the wrong side and they snuck up on them. Or maybe it was that he was tired and just like slept through his alarm, so to speak, because he hadn't been able to sleep the last time, and he was like guarding Ellie the last time. Uh, I also wanted to state uh, before we close off the episode two things that I didn't bring up. One, Ellie knows about Starbucks because she's like, "Is that what they sold at at, at Starbucks?" Well, no, it like burnt N- shit. No, you are picking up on the wrong thing. The fact that Starbucks survived the apocalypse, as a Starbucks fan, that is just hilarious to me. For the Starbucks hater, haters out there, that's hilarious for me, for you, because it's they're like cockroaches. Like, they survived the apocalypse. It's insane to me. Like, we had a Starbucks at the, at the quarantine zone. I was like, what? Like, I wonder if they had the chestnut praline. That's what I'm wondering. Did that survive? <laughs> Only rich people with, like, a lot of meal tickets are able to afford that. Right. But, yeah, I I, I remembered that bit. And uh, just, I remembered, oh, yeah, the, the scene where Ellie's, like, doing the typical teenager thing where, where he's, like, go to sleep as, as a parent to a child. Like, go to sleep. Like, we'll... we'll We'll hit the road and and find the place like later. I don't really need you to guide me. And she's like, "No, I I'm never going to sleep. I'm stubborn that way." And just passes out promptly the next second. I thought that was so cute, and like just typical quintessential like father daughter in like dynamics. Like, and I I I thought to myself, if I had never driven in a car before, I'm totally gonna be like those babies who are like crying and crying and crying until like you put them in the car and like the the motion of the road makes them pass out so i completely expected ellie to pass out like as soon as she said that i was like you haven't you're you're not used to the car's movement so you're gonna find them soothing you're gonna you're gonna go to sleep and i don't know i just i I love those two little moments i just forgot to mention them and 
a little like nod to the game again with The Last of Us Part Two with uh, the True Faith song. That was that was nice. I liked that. I I feel like we're gonna get a lot of eighties music from here on out. But uh, now that we've gone through all of that, now it's time to pick the MVP, the most valuable player. State which character impressed you the most throughout the episode and why. Once a character has been chosen, they cannot be selected again, so choose wisely. I'll let you go first. Okay. I mean, there aren't that many choices, let's be real. And there's only two of us, which makes it even better. Shout out to Vinny. Uh, I'm going to go with Joel. Like, really, my top two were the top two characters. I mean, let's just be honest. Uh, So, for me, out of the two, like, I could give the MVP to either of them. And I'm choosing Joel because we had moments where his walls were breaking down and he was letting Ellie in a little bit. He was curious about her. He was, um, there was a bit of like camaraderie between them. A bond was growing. Yes, he had a moment when he took two steps back. Oh, you're a cargo. But at the end of the day, he cares about her, or he's at least, the the caringness is growing. And I liked the way Pedro Pascal played that. I thought he played it brilliantly. I also love the action moments. I love the couple of wins that they got. They got a lot of losses. They took the L big time in this episode. But the little wins, the little dubs that they got were were good. The fact that they were able to escape and all that kind of stuff. At the end of the episode, they are in a precarious situation. I feel like anybody else that's like me that hasn't seen the game, that hasn't seen the game, that hasn't played the game, would probably feel like they they are in a very precarious situation. I don't, though. I feel like they're going to be just fine. Um, So, uh, yeah. So, even though it looks like they got a loss at the end, I enjoyed seeing Joel and Ellie, but in particular Joel, because I'm giving him the MVP, get those couple of wins and uh, survive, you know, another day. I'm glad you picked Joel, because that leaves my top pick free to grab, and that would be Ellie. I'm going to say, like, the actress... Is has gotten criticism from people being like, she's not my Ellie, she's not cute, like, she's not, like, stubborn, she's, like, and I'm like, where are you coming from with this? Because she was freaking amazing. She acted the shit out of Ellie. Like, I, I got the whole, like, troubled youth with, like, a dark past, but who manages to find the joy and light in things with, like, a quickly said quip or... Uh, a funny joke from like a corny joke book like I, I I just I loved all of that and little things that she does in her acting like wiping her face after she goes into the cubby hole after basically shooting a guy like because she is human and she does feel like emotion when she is directly responsible for a person being hurt or things like little bratty things like arguing about going to sleep in the truck or about drinking coffee and whether it tastes good, like, or enjoying chef. Like she's a quintessential kid. And I just, 
I think she does a really good job considering like the actress is what like definitely not a kid. Like I don't know what age she is, but she obviously like is probably going to be more considering like she's the head of a TV show and you need to be like above 18 to be able to have certain hours Bella that which is they're going to demand. Yeah, I knew it. I knew she was going to be older than than 18. But she doesn't act it. She acts like she's 12. She acts like she's 14. Like, she acts teeny. She acts like a teeny bopper. And I love that. Like, I think she does a really fantastic job playing Ellie. And I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next. So, now it's time to rate the episode. How would you rate this episode on a scale of 1 to 10 infected? The point system is allowed. If you found the episode exceptional, deserving of more than 10, you may grant it the coveted golden infected. And since there's only two of us, I'm going to go first for this time. And I'm going to rate it a 9, simply because, like, as much as I loved the cinematography in the dark, the acting choices between Ellie and Joel, I felt that, like, maybe it's because I've been spoiled for choice, but I miss the whole hour and 30 minute long episodes. I miss, like, getting more more bang for my buck. I miss getting, like, the epic highs and lows of the third episode, and... We didn't get that. This this episode felt like filler. And I get that, like, you need to have those moments to pause in the episode. But that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to have to give everything a golden and a ten because it, like, did everything right for an episode. I still feel like you can give it, you can ding it somewhat for not being satisfactory completely story-wise or wanting more. I, so definitely, like, above passing. It's still an A, but it's not perfect nine so that's my rating jeffrey what rating did you give it interestingly enough i was stuck between an eight and a half and a nine and i'll I'll co-sign with you with the nine just because i mean there's there's um there isn't that much of a difference between an eight and a half and a nine uh i'll give it a nine as well uh you've convinced me for basically the same reasons sort of i mean it was what i would consider to be a, a setup episode something that's clearly setting up their next part of the journey it was still very watchable uh, it was still very entertaining we got some really important exposition that i was looking forward to we need more exposition i want to know more about their past and that kind of stuff. But for what we got, it was all really interesting. The action-y moments were really good. Um, I was on the edge of my seat a couple of times. And uh, even though I'm not worried for them, it was still a fairly decent cliffhanger. I do agree with you that the episodes need to be longer. Like, this was... Teeny, 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 tiny compared to what we've been getting. So uh, maybe it's, you know, as you said, us getting spoiled. It's been sort of like an embarrassment of riches in regards to uh, episode lengths. But still, you know, for calling this episode, I mean, you dropped the dreaded F word. I called it setup. Uh, so if it's a setup-y, F-wordy filler for those out there that aren't following along, if it's that type of episode, then maybe it's good that it was a shorter episode so that next time we'll get like a full hour and it's like chock full of, uh, of goodness. You know, it's our own little personalized uh, Chef Boyardee ravioli can of yumminess from 20 years ago. Aging like wine, giving it flavor. <laughs> That's funny. So 
With that being said, join us next time for a brand new installment of the Cordyceps Chronicles. Here's our announcer to remind you on how you can interact with us. Follow Poppy Chula Radio on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Poppy Chula Radio. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or concerns? Email us via contact at poppychularadio.com. Are you interested in joining the Poppy Chula Radio team as an on-air personality? Email talent at poppychularadio.com. Binge listen to your favorite Poppy Chula Radio programs by visiting poppychularadio.com slash archives. You can also download tonight's broadcast and the rest of the series through Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Just search for The Cordyceps Chronicles and subscribe. Thanks, announcer. My co-hosts, please wish the listeners a good night. And since there is no co-hosts but co-host, I'm just going to ask you, Jeffrey. Have a good night, listeners. Stay safe. And a special good night to you, Will Livingston. <laughs> oh, everybody out there, play yourself some Lottie Kastner tonight and enjoy her cover of True Faith. It's, it's, it's good to listen to. With that, thanks for tuning in. Subscribe to the Cordyceps Chronicles via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. New episodes release every Tuesday. You can also download the entire series by visiting poppychularadio.com slash archives. Good night.